Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett, going to guide you gently through this week's show. And we've got a great great guest this week, Tori Emerson-Barnes, who's the EVP of Public Affairs and Policy at the U.S. Travel Association. And I guess when we, start, when we started 2020, Tori, you didn't really realize what was ahead of you. What an extraordinary year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we started uh, the year coming off 10 straight uh, years of growth for the industry uh, and and really just kind of a record breaking uh, period of time. And and then uh, the pandemic hit and uh, and here we are. So uh, arguably the uh, the hardest hit of all industries. Yeah, we'll really dig into that and uh, find out more about it. And we've got Frank Washcook here as our executive editor, my regular co-host. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. And uh, we'll chat with Frank about some of the big news stories of the week. A couple of uh, account wins. Weber's lost some business. They've lost Honeywell to Finn Partners, and Michelin has gone back to Ketchum. So we'll find find out about that. We'll talk about the Facebook Oversight Committee's uh, ruling on uh, Donald Trump and whether to allow him back on the platform. Uh, Basecamp is an interesting saga saga that has uh, thrown up the whole topic of politics at work should you chat about it and uh yeah a bunch of people left uh following that saga so we'll find out more about that and more agency holding companies have been uh, putting their results out mdc and there's some changes at blue focus which is the uh chinese holding company with their international divisions and then cvs and Wal- walgreens a little bit of backlash backlash against their vaccine uh, distribution and as usual, the people moves keep coming. So we'll round up those. But first of all, Tori, tell us about the year. I mean, just give put, give us some numbers because they're really stunning. You know, one the, the scale of uh, the contribution of travel to the U.S. economy, but also the the way it it, it, it flatlined in 2020 and how you dealt with that as as an industry body representing that industry. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, really compelling uh, numbers, to, to say the least. Uh, just to give you an example, in 2019, uh, we, uh, as I mentioned, were coming off of, uh, of 10 um, straight years of growth, uh, $1.1 trillion dollars. Uh, in travel spending here in the U.S. generated a $2.6 trillion economic impact and supported uh, almost 17 million American jobs. Uh, and obviously with the pandemic and travel coming to a, to a halt, um, everything really just stopped. Uh, and it cost the, the economy here in the U.S. $500 billion in lost travel spending. Um, you know, overall travel spending fell 42%. Um, but international inbound visitation declined uh, 76%. Business travel fell 70% uh, because really in 2020, we were only seeing that first quarter um, of real activity and, and everything else falling flat the rest of the year. So, Tori, those numbers are incredible. How, just in terms of how do, you, how do you define travel from the point of view of the U.S. Travel Association? What parts of the industry are on, come under that? 
Uh, well, the U.S. Travel Association represents all of the different um, segments of travel. So uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, rep- we represent airports, we represent uh, lodging, we represent attractions, destination marketing organizations, uh, national uh, state tourism offices. Um, but really, when we get down to the sort of data, uh, we're looking at leisure and hospitality data um, and then factoring in transportation related um, uh, numbers into that as well. So it's a it's a sort of unique calculation, if you will. Um, a lot of numbers that are often published are sort of leisure and hospitality specific. Um, we look at a, a more of a macro number that con- contemplates, uh, you know, air and car travel, and and um, and so it's a more sort of comprehensive to the travel industry. Um, those numbers, though, you know, recognize both direct and indirect spend um, uh, overall. Um, you know, from a loss perspective, um, 65% of all jobs lost to the pandemic were in um, the leisure and hospitality sector, um, 5.6 million of those jobs. Um, and uh, the broader travel industry and a sort of supply chain of jobs is, is more of that, you know, 16 to 17 million pre-pandemic. So just give us a, a, an insight into the sort of human impact of that. Just stunning amount of people and numbers and jobs gone. Um, how, how? What was the impact and how did you help out as a, as a trade organization? Yeah, I mean, what we were seeing right at the beginning was uh, that we, we first started to see business meetings, events start to cancel here uh, in the U.S. as uh, there were you know, uh, as the pandemic sort of started to to impact the rest of the world. Um, once we saw those international borders close down, coupled with that, the business meetings and events, things started to take uh, an even greater turn. And then, you know, it was about mid-March last year when um, there were large, you know, large stay-at-home orders across the country. Um you know, without any business, without any demand, there were businesses that obviously uh, couldn't sustain uh, their employee base. Uh, and it's something that we're still very much dealing with right now. Um, even as things start to pick up here in the U.S., as we start to see that domestic leisure increase, we're finding that uh, in a lot of pockets of, of America, that we aren't even able to sort of hire back folks at the numbers that we that we need to meet demand in some in some locations um, because so many people left the workforce altogether, um, left to take other jobs. Some may still be weary about working in a very you know um, hands-on type of, of arena where you have to be around people um, as a result of the pandemic still still being here. Um, and in some cases, we've, we've seen, um, you know, hiring back just be really, really difficult. Uh, and then you have other pockets where, um, you know, where there's just not enough demand to actually operate um, or uh, businesses have completely shuttered and won't come back. Um, we worked really hard right in the beginning of the pandemic back in March during uh, what, what was called the CARES Act um, legislation 
in Congress and really called for significant resources for the hardest hit industries. And I think at the time, you know, Congress really thought this was going to be much more of a short-lived issue. Uh, I think probably everyone did, right? We we're yeah. stay, had these stay-at-home orders. People thought that it was going to, you know, okay, we'll stay at home and everything's going to be back to normal in, you know, in just a couple months or maybe even less than that. Um, and that obviously has not been the case. Uh, so there were different pieces of legislation um, that were helpful for the U for for our industry within that CARES Act, um, or different components, I should say. Uh, one of which was the uh, payment protection program that was really geared towards those small businesses, 500 or fewer employees. That helped um, some folks in lodging and some folks um, in re some restaurants and you know other travel-related businesses um, to some extent for some period of time. But again, even that program um, was really designed to be um, a short-term fix. Um, there were some uh, extensions, expansions, modifications of the PPP in midsummer um, last year that was really important. Um, but we were still having challenges with how to help the mid-sized businesses or even some of the larger businesses. The Main Street lending facility that was part of the CARES Act through the Treasury was supposed to be uh, a useful uh, uh uh, fund for folks to tap into it. It became really too many strings attached to challenging for businesses to really be able to optimize. Uh, so we we knew we needed to to get more done, and so uh, we worked hard to get uh, other parts of the travel industry included in um, the COVID relief package that passed in December. Uh, some destination marketing organizations and others to be included into the PPP. Um, obviously, the Restaurants Act was really important uh, with billions of dollars to help the uh, restaurant industry uh, and to really expand upon some of the relief that was being doled out from uh, for the states and localities, uh, EDA grants, economic development assistance grants to be able to be used for uh, travel-related businesses. So there was a lot of work that we did um, on the relief side, and then also just on um, resources to uh, and communication on how to really help to drive a, a, an understanding and awareness of how to access these um, these types of funds. Another important thing that we started, and this is really, um, I think, you know, exciting, and we're actually getting ready to launch the third phase of our Let's Go There campaign, um, which was really geared towards um, initially when we launched it back in September, um, a great, uh, a great um, really coming together of the whole industry uh, to, to reimagine and think about and help travelers and Americans think about, you know, the excitement and the anticipation of, of thinking about planning a trip and, and getting back out there again. And that work that really started as a collaboration across the whole industry um, is getting ready uh, to hit the phase three launch uh, coming up in just uh, a couple weeks. And it's really going to be all about getting out there and actually booking travel now that we're seeing vaccination rates increase and people getting more comfortable with getting back into a more normal routine in life. So 
um, that's been something great. And I should also say, you know, from, from a travel industry health and safety standpoint, um, early on, uh, we, we convened the industry to put together sort of a baseline health and safety protocols that could be used throughout the industry and that different segments could really grow, um, and, and use, um, in, in any of, of their own capacity, um, uh, expand upon if they, if they wanted to. Um, and I think that's really helped um, to uh, give confidence to folks that are getting back out there that health and safety processes are being focused on uh, when folks uh, travel through uh, the the ecosystem of, of the yeah, of the industry. It's really important, isn't it? I mean, I totally take your points about um, both people not coming, people finding it hard to to hire people back. That's been a really interesting trend and. Uh, and um, so let's go there is, is great. And we're all sort of starting to, I think, come out of our chrysalis a little bit and think about traveling again. You've said, I think, that it's going to take four or five years to recover from this for the industry. And I, I saw you um, testifying to the Senate subcommittee on travel and tourism. Um, how can you communicate the facts? And what are the big communication issues around making people feel comfortable about traveling again and make and getting back to normal? Because, you know, some habits have changed, haven't they? Especially in business travel, the CFOs, I guess, have quite liked the fact that their T&E budgets have <laughs> virtually gone to zero. <laughs> Whilst, you know, everyone wants to get back out there, I think that it will be a challenge to get back to the, uh, the levels that, that, that we were at before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that it will be difficult. I mean, we are looking at a 2024 to 2025 time horizon for recovery, really, for the industry. Um, I think, you know, two key and important parts of the industry that really need um, a reopening. One is international. I mean, we are calling for definitive timelines and a blueprint, a roadmap, um, to from the federal government to be able to um, start to reopen the international borders. Uh, you know, without doing that, we risk another million jobs being lost this year. Uh, and you know, as I mentioned before, before the pandemic, international or travel writ large was very robust, but international travel specifically. Uh, was really important because international travelers, they come here, they spend more money because they stay longer. Uh, there was a $51 billion travel trade surplus uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, and it's a real opportunity uh, for us, uh, not only to, um, from an economic standpoint, but really to reposition the U.S. on the global stage and allow for folks to understand that we are a welcoming country and bring folks back together again. Um, that's such an important component of travel. Uh, you touched as well on the business meetings and events. And, you know, a lot of businesses, you're right, they're, you know, going to be apprehensive about sending someone, um, you know, off beyond liability related issues. But um, from an economic standpoint, you know, does a meeting need to be in person? I think a lot of the data that we are seeing shows that people want to be able to travel again for business purposes, um, you know, that they want to see each other and interact with each other and collaborate with each other. And quite frankly, you know, a Zoom meeting or Zoom engagement or, you know, whatever platform you're going to use 
it can work well when you already have existing relationships. But when you really need to build those relationships, um, you know, that's something that that interpersonal engagement and, you know, going to have a cup of coffee or sitting in a room and brainstorming or riding up in an elevator and ch- chatting about, you know, your kids or your dog or what have you, um, you know, that really does impact relationships and the way people get business done. And so I I think that while there may be some hybrid for some period of time, um, you know, I think there will be a desire for folks to be back out there. But from an economic standpoint, business meetings and events are, are critical and they can be done and held in a healthy and safe way. Um, you know, if people, people are back at the grocery store, you're, you're grabbing milk across from someone or you're grabbing the hot dogs or whatever you're grabbing, you know, that's much less structured than if you're in a professional business meeting and you have masks and you have the appropriate health and safety practices in place. Yeah, I think we've definitely noticed it in New York City where we we even miss the tourists blocking our way in the street and all that stuff because you you didn't realize how much they they contributed to the vibrancy of the city and the restaurants and the tourism and Broadway and all that good stuff. So yeah, I definitely uh, definitely agree with you there. So um, Tori, you've worked in DC around sort of public affairs. You were GM, I think, for fourteen years before you came to the U.S. Travel Association. How is it? How does it work? Because in and amongst this, of course, there, there's a new administration, and you've worked through several administrations. How do you approach that as a communicator in terms of transitioning from you know one administration to another and making sure that you're still able to get your points over and lobby effectively? Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely been interesting. I would say that in some ways there's been you know greater accessibility uh, given that it is easy to get on you know, uh, a phone call or, or a Zoom, but it's also, again, you're, you're making these new relationships. And in, in some cases, they're already pre-existing relationships like, you know, Cedric Richmond, for example, who's in the White House, who was a former member of Congress. Um, you know, he's someone that, that we know well, or uh, you've got, you know, friends of friends, um, you know, uh, from the Hill uh, that are now, uh, you know, up in the administration. So there's definitely, um, you know, a a way to get around to meet with people, but it's definitely a a challenge. Um, And, uh, and so we've been working on it um, since before the, the, um, uh, the administration actually came into place. We, as an industry put together um, sort of a 100 day plan, if you will, um, and that we shared with uh, the transition team that was helping to transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Uh, and uh, and we've already had some really strong and great engagement um, since, again, before the pandemic, or I'm sorry, before the new administration uh, was inaugurated or the president was inaugurated um, uh, and have engaged, you know, very, very much with uh, the key departments and the White House on a on a very consistent basis. Of course, I look forward to meeting all of these people um, or seeing those that I knew again in person, um, because that's definitely, um, I think, a better way to do business. Uh, but it, it, at least, you know, in this unique time period, um, we have uh, been able to engage. And we had a, a hybrid board meeting down in Florida um, in March with all the health and safety protocols in place. And, you know, we zoomed in um you know, White House officials and, and senators, and uh, and we've done the same with 
some of our, our CEOs, uh, where they've had, um, you know, uh, very senior level meetings with secretaries, uh, Secretary Romando and Secretary Mayorkas and, um, and uh, other White House officials. And we've been able to do that um, on Zoom. Uh, again, we look forward to getting back in, 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 um, in person. Uh, but I would say that, that there's been a recognition that especially as the hardest hit industry, we need to be communicating with, with the new administration yeah for sure yeah i think we've, we've got team members that we haven't met in person <laughs> i'm sure you probably have <laughs> so we're all, we're all going to have to get to know each other again and uh, get used to going into a physical location so thanks for telling us all about that tori fascinating stuff and we really hope for a better year for travel generally because i think it makes us uh, it makes us more fun we've we've realized how much we miss it there's so much pent up but uh, excitement about it isn't there so we're looking forward to as as you say let's go there <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i think the, the good news is is 72 percent of american travelers are planning summer trips this year um and that, that number was at 37 percent in 2020 um and so you know as i as i said the ramp up of domestic leisure um really is strong um, but, you know, it's not all rosy because we need, you know, these sectors, this international, the business uh, travel to come back. But, um, you know, we are seeing, again, on this domestic leisure side, uh, um, really strong uh, and wearing uh, to go folks that, uh, that want to get back out there, especially the more that they're vaccinated. Definitely. I've done about 30 states, so I've still got 20 up to go and uh, some brilliant things to see in the in the U.S. and some brilliant places to explore. So uh, thank you, Tori, and we'll get your input on some of the stories we're going to discuss. Frank, um, some interesting account stories this week and a couple of uh, pieces of bad news for Weber Shamwick. Yeah, so uh, Honeywell, the industrial conglomerate, uh, picked Finn Partners as its new U.S. PR partner. Uh, they're replacing Weber. What's interesting about this is that Honeywell had brought on a whole team of interpublic group agencies about three years ago, uh, and Weber was the PR firm, uh, along with MRM McCann, was doing B2B marketing. Uh, Jack Morton was doing experiential and uh, a bunch of other shops from IPG. Now, Honeywell is sticking with them, but moving the PR component of the account uh, from Weber Shanwick over to Finn Partners. Here's another interesting one in that Michelin, which was a longtime client uh, and an important client of Ketchum, uh, and they had split up in 2019 and, and Weber had become uh, Michelin's agency uh, at that point, but now they are back with Ketchup. Uh, and they said there was no RFP process. It was just that the company reached out and said, would you be interested in working together again? So yeah, two very interesting account moves there this week. Yeah, an interesting bounce back. I guess you could say that Ketchum knows where the rubber hits the road, Frank. There you go, yeah. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, okay. Um, do you work with agencies, Tori, at the USTA? Uh, with agencies, yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, we've pretty bare bones these days, I have to say, um, given the state of the industry. Uh, so we're doing a, a lot in-house, but historically we have worked with, uh, with different agencies and, uh, and in particular on the Let's Go There campaign where we had um, some significant fundraising for, uh, we worked very closely with McGarry Bowen and Publicis uh, on that work. So uh, we, have, uh, we have done some agency work in the, in the short past. 
Okay, Frank, uh, there's been a lot of uh, noise this week about the Facebook Oversight Committee's verdict on whether to allow former President Donald Trump back onto the platform. It's almost been like a Supreme Court verdict, hasn't it? I don't know whether that's uh, just uh, an indication of the power of Facebook or the way people are just getting a bit carried away with this story. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, So what it is, Facebook's Oversight Board... Um, basically said the company was wrong to make the suspension indefinite, but did not overturn it and gave it six months to just sort of, you know, figure out what to do. I I was pretty surprised at this. uh, Honestly, Uh, I think a lot of people were, I think a lot of people uh, expected Facebook's board to, uh, to strike down the ban. Uh, But at the same time, I, I think that the, action that the social media platforms took after January the 6th was appropriate. Uh, nobody, not even the president has a, a constitutional right to have a social media account, you know, despite what some people say, and nobody should be using those accounts or those platforms to, to encourage violence, you know, even if it's in, in a way with coded language. And I think that the, you know, it's almost like a do no harm thing where I think the platforms have to be thinking the first thing that uh, we have to be responsible for is making sure people don't get hurt. So I think those actions were appropriate when they took them. And, uh, you know, Twitter's sticking with the ban and it looks like Facebook will evaluate at some point in the future. Yeah, it's interesting to show the power of those platforms. And I guess this next story is kind of related to it. And Basecamp, um, there was an edict sent around by their CEO about people not being allowed to talk about politics at work, and it uh, prompted an extraordinary response, didn't it? Lots of people left. It really did, and and there are some great there's some great behind the scenes journalism out there about this decision and about the call and and just you know some employees messaging on the side and talking about how they were they were screaming at their you know computer screens listening to this just because uh, it, it almost felt like I think to a lot of them that this, the, the company was just taking the easy way out instead of being willing to take a stance on some you know societal issues, whether that is diversity, equity and inclusion or Black Lives Matter um, or, you know, violence against minority communities, all of those things. And look, I have a few thoughts about this. And I, I number one, Almost everything is political in this day and age, no matter what. And I don't know how you can possibly say, don't have conversations about anything that might be political in nature or might be so, you know, societally divisive when, and this is an overused example by me, but like, what if you come in on Tuesday morning and you say, well, I had Chick-fil-A for dinner last night. Well, that's something a lot of people could interpret as being political or a political statement or a stance. So um, that's the world we live in now. But I think that another thing I think about this is that especially with, you know, uh, younger millennial employees and Gen Z employees who want their workplace to be more than just a paycheck and want, you know, their employers to really, really have their back and things like that. And especially for young employees or, or any employees from minority communities, they probably felt really let down by this company's management when they did this. So all in all, I just think that when it comes to these things, I don't think there's any way for companies to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And I, I think they are going to have to figure out a way forward 
uh, in which companies are dealing with these these very heavy issues. Yeah, it's a web software company up in the Chicago area, and um, I think a third of the employees actually left. Which uh, it seems like there might be a little bit more to this story, you know, beneath the surface than than there was. But uh, I don't think anybody particularly wants to go to work and talk about politics, do they? But on the other hand, everything is political these days, and and brands and businesses being encouraged to get involved in social and political dialogues, aren't they? So do you have a view on this, Tori? I know you spent some time as a congressional liaison at the RNC. Um, It does seem a bit strong to actually say nobody can talk about a certain topic at work, even though you're probably not going to be having intense political debates. Yeah, I mean, I I have a general view that most businesses should have a, you know, government relations type of function. I think in particular, if you're a heavily regulated industry, then you then you likely do. Um, And I think that that it's really to an organization's benefit to have someone that really does know and understand the way things work in Washington and, and in state capitals across the country. Um, I, I think it, it is, uh, it goes a little bit too far to say, uh, in my view anyway, uh, we're not going to have any conversations about political. I also think though some folks are taking it too far, right? Uh, I think it's one thing to engage on some of these issues if you're within the sort of, uh, arena of your businesses. Um, and, and, and I know that, that, that some may, disagree with me on this point, but, you know, I think where and how and what we mean by political, right? You know, I mean, if we're, if we're working on, on engaging elected officials to help, um, help the business, um, you know, that's, that's an important function. If we are making, you know, business decisions, um, you know, uh, <laughs> based on political reasons, you know, that, that starts to get, you know, more tricky. And then, you know, I think some of, some of what is happening here where folks sort of have a knee jerk reaction or organizations have a knee jerk reaction to something that happens out there, um, isn't always the best response. You know, sometimes it it is helpful. Um, it, it is probably more helpful to in, be intentional um, around the issues that you're going to to, to hold out there, um, and uh, and to also pause and and think about things before um, automatically reacting. So you know, I think that there's kind of different perspectives, different ways to look at it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and you've got to be authentic about it as well. What's right for Ben and Jerry's and Nike might not be right for. Um, or, you know, uh, run-of-the-mill, not run-of-the-mill, but more everyday company or household goods or whatever. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Frank, agency holding companies, MDC had its results out this week um, and lower revenues but higher profits. And actually that might be partly because they're spending less on travel and expenses. But uh, And then some news from uh, the international division of Blue Focus, the Chinese holding company. Yes. So MDC first, uh, their organic revenue was down 6.9% year over year in Q1 to just over $300 million. Uh, like you mentioned, though, they made a profit. Um, the net income was $900,000, uh, which is better than the $2.4 million net loss that uh, they suffered in Q1 uh, 2020. Um, very quickly, 
on the Blue Focus International Agencies, CBC Capital and CDPQ, which I'm going to abbreviate if only because my French is is really terrible um, when I try to give the full name of this Montreal-based company. But uh, they have I'm agreed to take... I'm disappointed, Frank. <laughs> so it's, um, they're going to take a majority stake in the Blue Focus International uh, agencies and uh, Brett Marchand, uh, Vision Seven International's president and CEO, is going to lead the combined entity. All of these groups brought together. Uh, these are the main agency groups. We are Social Fuse Project and Vision Seven. Uh, and Vision Seven as a group includes Cosette, Cosette Media, Eleven, and Citizen Relations, which is is probably the most prominent PR firm of the whole group. Brett Marchand is going to lead that combined entity. Uh, as their CEO, so that's a that's an interesting um, an interesting buy there for sure. Yeah, because Blue Focus at one time people were talking about it as the WPP of Asia, weren't they? And with yep. Oscar, Oscar Zhao as the the charismatic leader, but they've been a lot bit quieter recently. But interesting that they've uh, uh, sort of hived off their international business. So let's talk about uh, CVS and Walgreens. I guess you could say they've had a good pandemic, if you like, in that they've you know, really pitched in and helped out communities and and uh, their workers have stepped up on the front line. But uh, they had a little bit of rare negative publicity this week, didn't they, about around the vaccine distribution? Yeah, they did. And and the distribution of the, of the vaccine is obviously a very complicated issue. But I think what really jumped off the page at a lot of folks was just the number of wasted shots and wasted doses and just the percentage of that that came from these two pharmacy chains. Uh, so the CDC's numbers were that um, – were that there were more than 180,000 wasted doses uh, as of late March. And CVS accounted for nearly half of those, and Walgreens was responsible uh, for another 21%. Now, CVS's side of this, and this is why Axios, uh, is that his company actually was able to limit the waste to uh, approximately one dose per on-site vaccination clinic, which does make you think about it in a different way when it's spelled out that way. Um, but th- there are some changes coming here, and you wonder if this is, and hopefully this is going to help fix the problem, and that uh, as of this week, anybody can just go and make a walk-in uh, appointment to get vaccinated. Um, and you would hope that's going to cut down on the sheer number of, uh, of vaccinations of shots wasted. Yeah. So it becomes more like the sort of flu vaccine uh, than in time. And we'll probably have to get top ups each year. Tori on the vaccine front, uh, can you ever perceive of a time when you would have to be vaccinated to go on a plane, for example, or to visit a conference or something like that? Or is that just too problematic legally to enforce? You know, I think we generally think legally it's it's difficult. We also, you know, think that you shouldn't have to have the vaccine to be able to travel or attend an event. Um, however, we do think and are highly encouraging folks to get vaccinated. So, you know, I think this new walk up, you know, don't have to have an appointment approach is really good because I think one of the issues, you know, has been folks that, that you know, want to get the vaccine, but the way that, that, that certain states or certain cities have rolled out the process has made it difficult. And it makes it, you know, really, you know, you, you maybe you're 
geared towards doing it and then you kind of give it up and you're like, all right, well, forget it. I'm just, I'm not going to get it. Um, obviously, we want to, to get as many folks vaccinated. I think that's one of the keys to really opening up more broadly. Uh, the more folks in the U.S. that we have vaccinated, I think the more likely we'll, we'll see restrictions ease. So, I, I, you know, we think this is, a, a, is great and think um, really, again, encourage folks. But I don't see a scenario where vaccines become a requirement. Yeah, it's difficult to enforce, isn't it? I, I wholeheartedly agree on the vaccines. The uh, problem is that quite a large percentage of people don't. So I think that is going to be a challenge and uh, we'll see how that plays out. Frank, uh, just to finish off, um, some more interesting people moves this week. Yeah, let me tell you about the top one, which is uh, Disha Barnett, who you have read about in PR Week and you've seen at some of our events. She is joining uh, UPS as their strategic communications VP. It's a new role that was created as part of a restructuring of the company's global comms team. And uh, she's starting June 1, reporting up to Malcolm Berkeley, uh, who is president of media investor in crisis communications. Uh, Disha was most recently at the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. She's a veteran of Walmart, too. Uh, here's another high profile one. Two uh, good hires by American Express. One is ABC News' comms VP, Julie Townsend. Uh, and they're also bringing on Madge Thomas from UNICEF to manage CSR. Uh, Townsend is going to be the VP of communications for the Global Consumer Services Group. Both are reporting up to Jennifer Schuyler, the chief corporate affairs officer at Amex, uh, and a, a healthcare-specific agency world hire, or I'm sorry, promotion, as Golan ups Jamie Reggio to U.S. healthcare managing director. She's been a key player in the healthcare group in the companies in the firm Chicago office for a number of years. Healthcare is the fastest growing segment uh, of Golan's business, according to their CEO, Matt Neal. Yeah, I think the agency business report we just released showed that across all the big agencies that, you know, 20 to 30% of their businesses in healthcare and uh, healthcare, the, the lens of health and public health is going to be most communications is going to have to have that lens and that perspective whether it's in travel or, or any other sector so that will continue tori thank you so much for joining us we we uh, it was great to find out more about the travel industry and how it's bouncing back and we really wish you the best and the whole everyone in the industry in terms of getting back and uh, getting back out there so we uh, it was great to have you on the show well thank you very much for having me and i hope folks will uh We'll uh, not only get vaccinated, but get out there and uh, book that trip and uh, and enjoy all that the beautiful country has to offer uh, uh, for your travel this summer. I was in Kentucky last week, actually, so uh, already started on that, and I've got some international travel booked in June. I'm going to my local pub tonight, so I'm looking forward to that. So <laughs> getting back to normal. Frank, are you getting back to normal? Getting out and about a bit? Well, I'm I'm fully vaccinated as of two days from now as of Saturday. So looking forward to it very soon. Big weekend. For <laughs> you need to make some, make some big plans on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks both. Uh, great to have you on the show. Don't forget the PR Week Global Awards on the 20th of May. Going to be a brilliant virtual event. The Brand Film Awards on the 25th of May. Fantastic celebration of filmmaking on behalf of brands. 
the entry uh, date for the 40 under 40 um, class of 2021 is the first deadline is the 13th of May, and then you have until the 26th of May after that. So please get working on your entries. Our Hall of Fame celebration is on the 10th of June, another virtual event. PR Decoded, our big conference, which uh, will probably be virtual still. Um, that's 12th to the 15th of October, and our Purpose Awards will be on the 13th. And we may or may not do those as a physical event, but uh, they, they'll definitely be hybrid. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.